Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, we will be hosting Eric Cressy following last week's Swapcast with his Elite Baseball Development Podcast, where he hosted Ben Ashworth from Informed Performance. Eric, as you well know, is the president and co-founder of Cressy Sports Performance and the director of player health and performance at the New York Yankees. On this episode, myself and Ben fire technical questions around programming, anatomical considerations and workload management, amongst more, at Eric, and he does not disappoint in sharing his wealth of knowledge. This episode has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of Forstex, the world's fastest, easiest and most powerful dual force plate system. Forstex can help you to analyse neuromuscular strength, performance and imbalances in your athletes. With an incredibly simple setup and intuitive software, Forstex automatically detects over 15 common force plate tests and analyzes them with a single click, helping you to collect quick and accurate insights on your athletes. To learn more, head over to our sponsor, boldperformance.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Annie McDonald, and Ben Ashworth. Just before we get into the conversation between us and Eric, I just want to draw your attention to an Informed Performance update. If you work in elite sport or have an influence on elite sport and would like to showcase your thoughts, ideas and opinions, then we will be accepting articles from guest contributors to post on our website. If you'd like to showcase these ideas and your work, then get in touch via our website, informperformance.com. Right, on to today's show. A man that needs uh, no introduction, Eric Cressy, welcome to the show. It's uh, it's a pleasure to have you on on our podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. In the in the very, very rare chance that someone listening lives under a rock and hasn't heard of you, could you just kind of outline your background and I guess your current work setup and current role? Yeah, um, you know, I, li- I guess I live a few lives. First is, is dad and uh, dad to three daughters and then husband to Anna. But um, in addition, in the strength conditioning world, uh, our niche is really training baseball players. Um, so we founded Cressy Sports Performance back in 2007. Um, you know, and, and really quickly realized that this was a very underserved population on um, strength conditioning for baseball guys. And um, over the course of time, you know, expanded what we originally started as high school players, became college players, became pro players. And all of a sudden we were training guys from all 30 major league organizations. And, and the business itself morphed as well from just a strength conditioning business to also a offering manual therapy, physical therapy, um, skill development in terms of hitting and pitching, um, data analytics, um, all those different entities, um, which has become extra important this year in the in the era of COVID where, you know, minor league baseball was canceled, a lot of college players have missed their seasons. So we've kind of been forced to almost put on our own league and, and give these guys developmental opportunities when they otherwise wouldn't have had them. So, um, you know, that's the, the private sector role. And then um, in addition to that, I, I serve as director of player health and performance for the New York Yankees. Um, so that was a position I, I took on in December of 2019. So we're entering my second season with the organization. And in that you know, capacity, I, I work alongside our director of sports medicine, um, our director of uh, performance science, um, as well as you know, directors of mental skills and you know, other capacities, um, advanced scouting, uh, pro scouting, you know, all of our skill development folks and player development um, to kind of effectively head up a lot of organizational tasks in terms of how we want to not just train our players, but also, um, you know, set the stage and establish systems um, so that we're impacting the players that are that are still in our minor league pipeline that are our future big leaders of tomorrow. That's got to be one of the broadest skill sets that anyone in the industry has <laughs> had to develop over the years, you know, starting starting in strength and conditioning and then layering on top all of those different uh, environments and skills that come with them. 
So yeah, I think that's more that's more entrepreneurship. You know, you have to hire people that are smarter than you in other disciplines. Hire people that you know complement your skill set, um, and, and also hire people that you know. I, I don't want to say you, you can delegate to. I, I, I look more as, as empowering people to do things that I you know I can't do nearly as well, so that I can really um, focus on on leveraging my strengths and doing things well. So you know, hiring good people allows me to you know not just do my job better in the facility, but it also allows me to write consult, speak, do things like that, that are also, I think, equally important for my, my productivity and my development as a coach. Yeah. And obviously Ben was on your show last week. So I think we can probably, we, we can assume you're warmed up and we can dive straight in. Yeah. Um, ben, I'm going to hand over to you, mate, and we can, uh, we can carry the conversation on. Yeah. Thanks, Andy and Eric. Great to have you on. It's been uh, only a short, a short time since we last spoke. Um, yeah. We, we spoke the other day and uh, largely it was focused around monitoring and um, you know I was on the stage so I'm really interested in actually following up on some of the things you mentioned in your questions um, we spoke about setting some standards based on you know what's what's like a sort of acceptable standard for lower body strength um, and particularly in your question you mentioned that from a developing athlete perspective so I'm really interested in what you think are kind of a a really good standard to set for the for the throwing athlete with regard yeah. to kind of lower body and upper body strength and how you yeah. look about that yeah you know even if i might even change the word standard to a landmark um i know historically speaking dealing with high school players I mean, we're talking about untrained 15 16 year old players when i've seen a kid get to a, a 315 pound clean trap bar deadlift good things just seem to happen, you know, in that 16 to 17 age range, when they understand not just how to hip hinge correctly, but how to load it. You know, that's when you see kids that, you know, came in thinking they were pitchers, all of a sudden, they walk in and their eyes get really big when they hit their first home run, they never thought they were going to be a hitter, and it just happened. Um, so you know, that's something I've, I've definitely seen, you know, maybe a in the years that follow like um, axial loaded single leg stuff. So like you see a, a young athlete, whether that's, you know, 18 years old, whatever it may be, who does like a, you know, reverse lunge with a front squat grip with 185, you know, with good technique, just, you know, it's a, it's a box that we check, you know, and then eventually, you know, we get to our pro guys and, you know, if you can, if you can trap our deadlift 455 with, you know, with decent speed, I feel like you're in a really good place strength, strength wise. Um, you know, I think we're recognizing more than ever that, you know, you know, big, big leaguers and, and certainly athletes in all sports, they come in all shapes and sizes, you know, with all different kind of strength profiles, but you know, those are probably three that, that really stand out for me. And, and what we're doing right now that, that I'm super excited about is, is working closely with Proteus motion um, to really take a lot of these, you know, strength standards and, and kind of put in the back of our heads and, and really think about how do we test these things more specifically? Like ultimately the goal is, how do we keep people healthy and let them, you know, hit baseballs hard or throw baseballs hard? Um, and, and so we're looking with Proteus on a lot of power testing and realizing that athletes do, they do create rotational power substantially differently. Um, some have very, you know, kind of long paths to do so. They, they really chase aggressive hip shoulder separation where it's over a longer period. Um, and then we have other athletes that, that work in a very tight window of controlled, uh, you know, elasticity. Um, we're also appreciating that some athletes um, are very powerful, but they don't have good acceleration. So in, in other words, they, they produce force quickly at the wrong times. And if you look at the, the best pitchers on the planet, you know, they tend to create late arm speed in their delivery. Whereas the guys that chase it earlier off and the guys that, 
wind up with anterior shoulder and medial elbow issues and they, they can't throw strikes. So really what our standards are have, have evolved over the years, both because we've seen more things that, that, you know, like, Hey, why can this guy deadlift 400 and jump 36 inches, but he, he literally throws 87. So those are the ones that made us question it. And also at the other end of the spectrum, how is this guy so weight room unathletic? He's a 16 inch vertical jump and he's not very strong and he's out there throwing 96 miles an hour. Those made us really rethink what our standards were. And now we actually have the technology to start to review it. And we're testing hundred mile an hour arms and guys with elite bat speed. And we're, we're seeing some cool stuff. My hunch is that we're about six to 12 months away from really having awesome data and working closely with the folks at Proteus actually have some, some research in the works as well that should be published here this year. So kind of exciting times from a, you know, actual objective um, data standpoint in, in terms of measuring where our athletes are and where we want them to be. I love that. The fact that, you know, you're, you're quantifying stuff. Of course, I'm very driven around the numbers, as you know, um, that's the kind of lower body stuff, which we spoke about last time is, is where the, a lot of the force gets generated. Um, if you had to sort of have a look and set some landmarks for upper body in terms of force production, where do you, where do you go with that? Um, you know, I worry less, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you this, one of the best pitchers on the planet, I won't tell you who it is. Um, he's made a lot of money playing professional baseball, throwing it at elite velocity for a long time, told me as long as I get to 60 pound dumbbell bench presses this off season, I'm fine. I'll be good. You know, he just knows that in the back of his head. And I'm not saying that's right for everybody, but you sure as heck don't need to bench 315 to, to be an elite thrower. So, um, you know, for me, a lot more of what I'm checking from an upper extremity outcome standpoint um, has a lot more to do with, with cuff strength testing, um, you know, particularly how you test at certain positions. I don't really care what your cuff strength is with your elbow at your side when you throw a baseball for a living. I'm a lot more interested in, in how you test up it, you know, position of upward rotation with, you know, 90 degrees of, you know, of, of, you know, flexion of the elbow, you know, similar to where we throw it. And also how well do you control your end range external rotation? Um, you know, I, I think that's one of the most overlooked things that we see with, with a lot of these athletes is they have loads and loads of passive external rotation, but their ability to actively tap into it and also transition from, you know, extreme external rotation into internal rotation during the acceleration phase of throwing. I think that's missed. And I know that's something that's, you know, that's, that's in your world, what you've experienced with, you know, dealing with rugby players, like, you know, if you're not weak, if you're not strong in that position, you're a big anterior shoulder instability candidate. But I, I follow, a, you know, I step away from the traditional measures of weight room strength in the upper extremity with overhead throwing athletes, because time and time again, I've seen guys that just don't really have a ton of strength who perform at an elite level. And, and we just have to be emotionally separated from the process because we care about the outcome. Got a question, for, you know, probably on behalf of the coaches out there, you mentioned in the sort of first part to that different movement strategies for how athletes, uh, you know, create force. And one of those is within, within rotation. When you've got, you know, tons of guys in, say, during spring training and you've logistically got to schedule and man manage, how much do you kind of maybe, you know, assess players and bucket them versus uh, individualizing program? How do you kind of logistically do that with, you know, big numbers? Um you know, I'll tell you this, it, this, the secret is, is understanding scale, right? There's what, you know, there's what you implement and what you scale. So both in our private sector work and, you know, honestly, what we're trying to do in this organization, there's no excuse to not individualize. Um, I, I really, I really, really believe that because 
these athletes are trusting us with their career. Um, they deserve better than one program on the dry erase board. So, you know, being honest, uh, you know, kind of where we are in terms of the, the time of this podcast, um, you know, our, our position players test, you know, are, are either basically en enter later in the spring. So it starts out with pitchers and catchers. So, you know, this year in major league baseball camp, you have, you have 75 allotment spots. Um, so, you know, mid forties come on the front end and, you know, 28 to 30 come on the, on the tail end. So, you know, I have a staff of, of really eight strength coaches here. If, if eight people can't individualize for 45 athletes, you know, and that, that's, that's assessing all those guys and that's, that's intake testing. That's everything from EKGs and, you know, ortho consults and blood work and all that stuff on the front end to going through, um, you know, what we do in the context of movement screens and all that, like, we should have 45 individualized programs ready for those guys the next morning when they walk in. And we did. And we anticipate doing the exact same thing with the next, you know, 30 that come in here in the, in the next few days. Um, and that's in the era of COVID. That's in the era of social distancing. Like this is a standard that we have to hold ourselves to. Um, so, you know, you mentioned the term bucketing. You can do that, right? Um, so I, I maybe template a little bit more in the context of movement training, medicine ball stuff, you know, certain progressions that I want in place from a deceleration standpoint, from you know, return to base running, all that stuff. Um, you know, where I individualize a lot is in the warm up stuff. Um, you know, certainly in terms of what we do with strength training, you know, athletes who's really stuck into like a, a military posture, we're going to use a lot more, you know, landmine press, cable presses, you know, push up variations to get the scat moving versus, you know, using a lot of like, you know, dumbbell bench press where the shoulder blades are pinned down. You know, if we have an athlete who's stuck in scapular depression and has really limited shoulder flexion, we're not going to give them pull-ups. You know, we're going to, we're going to do a lot more stuff to get some extensibility to those lats. So in terms of, you know, kind of how we bucket athletes, I think there's, there's loose and there's tight. We really, really hypermobile athletes. We have athletes that are really, really stiff. Those would be treated at different ends of the spectrum. Um, you know, certainly wide versus narrow infrasternal angles. When you see people that come in and, you know, in different presentations like that, you know, we're going to be aware that, hey, that, that wide infrasternal angle guy, he's probably going to lose rotational capacity faster if we just give him a lot of classic bilateral strength training stuff. So we're going to have to be more cognizant of how our volume plays out. We're probably going to give him a lot more chops and lifts, things like that to, you know, work on his rotation, maybe give him some med ball stuff in his warm up. You know, more PRI derivatives, right? We have left AICs and we have, you know, more PECs, um, you know, so we have athletes that have more pronounced asymmetries. So we'll look at those and then and instantly we'll look at age, you know, you look at injury history, um, you know, where do you want to use your bullets, you know, and, and if an athlete, you know, comes in and he's really highly trained, um, you know, that's a big thing. Like we last year in baseball, normally you play 162 games last year was 60. So it was a much shorter season. So we had athletes that weren't nearly as banged up by the end of the year, if they took care of themselves. So I had a, a couple major leaguers last year that, you know, that came back in. I'll never forget the same day, both of them trap bar deadlifted 455 for a clean set of five in their first workout of the off season. I'm like, all right, we're strong enough. Let's train other stuff. Um, so when you get those guys that show up for the season, you might have to, you know, or you might be willing to de-emphasize you know, the, the classic strength measures and, and focus on movement competencies because their efforts are better directed elsewhere. Um, but I really come back to like individualization is not hard. I think it's a cop out when, you know, in private facilities, pro organizations, college settings, anywhere really fall to that. If, if you're not able to individualize, it's because you don't have a good model in place, whether it's a business model or a model of scalability. And, um, you know, I, I really do believe that, you know, everybody who's in a leadership position should understand the concepts of scale. And that's why, you know, I read a lot of business books that, that pronounce, have a pronounced impact on the way that, you know, we, we coach our athletes and the way that we reach out to them, the way we educate our staff and, you know, the way it's going to go in the years ahead because of it. 
that was a very high quality answer. There was a lot in that. And uh, yeah, well, well put, mate. Um, what, what systems do you put in place to kind of protect players from injury? And I know that's quite a broad statement. Um, and I appreciate there's some yeah. sensitivity around details here, but um, yeah, what, what kind of strategies do you yeah. deploy? Well, you know, I, I think there, you have to first obviously recognize that the, the number one thing that you can do is a thorough health history um, with any of these athletes. And I, and I think that's very, very overlooked, um, particularly in professional sports when, you know, all the athletes kind of come in on the same day, you know, the, you know, usually it's collectively bargained where they all pop in and um, it's almost like speed dating, right? All these guys come in and they're, you know, you, you have to go through so many in a day that you can be careful that you, you, you sometimes just don't have the opportunity to have the conversations you want to have. And, you know, maybe you can't go through everything with a crazy fine tooth comb. And, you know, I came from the private sector and, you know, every evaluation takes as much time as I needed to take, you know, I'm, I need to do a deep dive. I want to ask a lot of questions about their training history, what's worked, what hasn't their injury history, all those. And I can't tell you how many times that initial intake conversation yielded something where, you know, I distinctly remember this is probably 2010. We had an athlete that came in and you know, he had like a right shoulder surgery and, um, you know, definitely you know, had an elaborate history there and went through all that. We're doing his movement screen. Like he takes his shirt off to do, you know, scapular upward rotation, shoulder flexion, you know, manual muscle tests, you know, cervical screens, all that stuff. And I look at him, he's got a left shoulder that's like three inches below his right, which anybody who works in baseball, knows, that's, that's, that's pretty uncommon in general from an anatomical standpoint, but even building on that, it's, it's even more uncommon in a right-handed thrower to have a low left shoulder. I was like, Hey, you have anything going on with this left shoulder? He's like, Oh yeah, I was in a car accident. I, I fractured my scapula three years ago. I'm like, you didn't bother to put that on the health history. Like that's kind of an important clinical finding that, you know, you were in a sling for, for eight weeks after that fracture and all this stuff. So I, I really want to dig deep. I want to get to know these guys. Uh, I want to ask tons of questions about their history. And then I want to see clinically, you know, how, how do their, reports of previous injury, where they get sore, where they feel tightness, how does it relate to the movement patterns I see? And then also, can I test retest, right? So best example, um, you get an athlete who goes into, you know, full shoulder abduction, right? So you're looking to check scapular upward rotation. How's the patterning, right? Is it hitchy into like retraction before it comes up into scapular upward rotation? It's smooth. What is it? And, you know, across the board, you know, you'll, you'll probably see, you know, 40% of guys who are like, you know, it's, it's pinchy on top, or I get a stretch in my lap. And one of the things I like to do is I'll just put my hands on their scap and I'll either like, maybe I'll guide them into a little bit of posterior tilt if they present with a really big scapular anterior tilt. You know, maybe if it's someone who's kind of stuck in downward rotation, I'll wrap that inferior medial border around to the mid axillary line. I'll really guide that shoulder blade into upward rotation. And I just want them to give me feedback and say, Hey, did that make it better? It didn't. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to take the humeral head and I'm going to push it back into the socket. I'm going to basically be your rotator cuff. Did that make it better? And so I'm always during my assessment, I'm not just taking notes. I'm not just judging guys and writing it down. I'm trying to build rapport. I want to know what can we modify to make you feel better? A, because it gives me clues for the program I need to write, but B I'm building a relationship with that athlete showing, Hey, we have an idea of how to make you better, how to take away your symptoms, you know, how to get you progressing in the right direction. I think that's such an overlooked part of, of the assessment process is you're not just there to judge them. You're, you're there to build a bridge, you know, not, uh, not put up a wall. Yeah. So that is a, a really nice way of sort of looking into things and certainly using your clinical skills and experience and getting your hands on. Um, and, and that kind of symptom modification procedure certainly I, th I feel allows you to unlock the door to a more successful rehab process. And 
I think one of the things that I've seen a lot of with, with uh, these programs that generally get put in place for, from an arm care perspective is there's a huge bias towards, you know, external rotators. You know, those are the big things to hit. And the research suggests that, you, you know, often there's yeah. a deficit in external rotation strength, if you like. Um, I'm interested in, you know, what maybe as part of your evaluation or just generally speaking, how do you look to the internal rotators and, and how do you overload that when it needs to be overloaded? Yeah. Um, so there's a, there's a multi-pronged answer to this. So the first thing is in the baseball world in general, there's been a, a really excessive focus on glenohumeral internal rotation. And what we know is that, you know, the overwhelming majority of throwers are going to have a non-pathological glenohumeral internal rotation deficit on their throwing shoulder, right? They have adaptations in terms of humeral retroversion that, you know, effectively shift their arc back. So we, we first off, we're going to look at, you know, is total motion symmetrical? And if it's not, how do we break these things out to figure out what's actually missing? Um, so that's the first thing, but you'll see a lot of people who have aggressively chased IR range of motion. And in some cases, you know, they've, they've created cuff irritation, they've torn posterior capsules, done whatever they need to do because they're trying to stretch out what's effectively a, um, a bony adaptation. So the first thing is understand what is normal IR for that individual. The second thing I'll say is, you know, one of the reasons they've focused on external rotation is because more of the research is showing that external rotation deficits, external rotation weakness, the lack of the ability to actively pick up all the external rotation that you have passively is a big problem. And a lot of these, these throwers will acquire more external rotation the more they throw, particularly in kind of the era of focus on, on weighted ball training. Some athletes will acquire a lot of external rotation fast, and that makes them a, a risk factor similar to, you know, taking a 15 year old gymnast and just, you know, stretching her into extreme like lumbar extension. And, you know, you wind up with a stress fracture and you wonder why it's a lot of passive motion that they can't control. Now, with that said, what is interesting, and this is something that actually was heavily talked about at the American Sports Medicine Institute conference back in 2020. Um, I'll never forget Dr. Andrews, like, why are we so focused on internal rotation? You need zero degrees of internal rotation to throw a baseball. The point isn't that you need to apply a force past neutral. It's that you need to apply force too neutral from an externally rotated position. So we have to think about is this pitcher where if you're, you know, right-handed pitcher and we're looking from the third base angle from the side, you see that form just laid back, you know, parallel to the ground, you know, that's an extremely vulnerable position, but what's happening is you're, you're effectively taking with lat, you know, peck, some of these powerful internal rotations of the shoulder and they're working from an extreme position of length. You've stored this elastic energy that's subsequently going to potentiate, you know, concentric muscle action to generate, you know, velocity towards the plate, both in terms of shoulder IR torque, as well as, you know, horizontal adduction. So I think the first thing that we need to look at when it comes to training into rotation is, can we cleanly control shoulder movement during that ER to IR transition? So first off, can you pick up your external rotators in that layback to get back there the right way? And second, can you also kind of work away from that forearm balance where you transition from extreme ER to IR, because that's when UCLs are exposed at the elbow where, you know, anterior shoulder forces are really high. So I like to start guys in the off season with kind of 90, 90 ER holds where we, we learn to pick up that end range and months two, three, as they do better with it, we'll actually do more work to actually transition from ER into IR. So we might do alternating push back, push forward, push back, push forward. And while we're doing it, we're controlling the arthrokinematics of the joint. So I don't want you 
to glide forward and back. And if we think about what's happening from an internal rotation standpoint, um, I know you guys are nerds and I know you have nerds listening to this podcast, so I'm going to geek out. If you think about what's happening from internal rotation, right? You have pecs, lats, anterior deltoid, uh, Terry's major, some of these big dogs that are creating internal rotation, all those have a more distal attachment on the humerus, right? To the point that uh, sometimes you'll see lat strains that are misdiagnosed as as biceps tendon irritation because they attach further down um, on the anterior aspect of the humerus to pull it into IR. As those big powerful muscles are pulling you into internal rotation, they really have to be offset by the rotator cuff and, and specifically the subscapularis um, has to work, you know, kind of crazy overtime to create a posterior pull on the head of the femur. So we get caught up talking about osteokinemax, being strong and pecs, lats, all that stuff, because you want to throw the ball hard, but your, your subscap and the rest of your cuff muscles actually have to be well conditioned to control the arthrokinemax, the rolling, the rocking, the gliding in the joint. And what your subscap is going to do is it's going to have a posterior pull on the, on the head of the humerus. So that humerus is going to sit more flush in the center of the joint while you go through that clean shoulder internal rotation. So for me, that's highest priority is controlling the arthrokinematics so that all the big dogs can do their work. And, and, and when you have that, then you, you can sell out for the dream. You can push ups, you can landmine, um, you can do some manual resistance. You can do some prone IR against gravity. Um, you can do a lot of the, the classic sexy stuff. Uh, I like a lot of cable presses with like alternate arm reaches. Um, so that's integrated more of a standing pattern, more thoracic rotation, but yeah, you can train internal rotation. I, I don't tend to bench, you know, our baseball guys, you know, aside from maybe some dumbbells here and there, but, um, we, we train it a lot with our medicine ball work as well. Um, particularly like the shot put oriented stuff, but, um, you know, for me, all that stuff is predicated on, on solid arthrokinematic control. Forgive me if this takes us into the weeds, but um, while That's we're talking right. anatomy, I want to pick your brains on something too. Um, <laughs> with their proximity to the shoulder, how much do you profile or, or how do you assess the, the neck and T-spine as they may yeah. relate to shoulder health or shoulder performance? Yeah, huge one. Um, so I'll, I'll break them out, even though they're very obviously intimately linked. I think the first thing that we, we look at the neck, um, I like SFMA, um, their four-part cervical screen as a kind of a quick check-in. Um, you know, we'll tend to see in throwers that they're unique in that you see some throwers who have a really aggressive, um, you know, contralateral flexion, kind of a head whip away from their dominant side. Those guys tend to be very, very gritty on the same side neck. Whereas the other guys that, that wind up actually having contralateral issues, um, from a manual therapy standpoint. So we look at what does cervical rotation look like side to side? We look at cervical flexion and extension. Um, I'd say historically the classic presentation in baseball players is your, you know, if you're familiar with the DN, DP, FN, FP pathology, you're gonna see a whole lot of DNs and maybe some um, DPs in one cervical rotation. And you're gonna see a whole lot of DNs on cervical extension. So it's gonna be a dysfunctional, non-painful pattern. What we tend to see are a lot of athletes who get a ton of upper cervical extension, not a lot of lower cervical extension. Um, those are the athletes that, you know, they tend to be gross and scaling and sternocleidomastoid. Um, a lot of times, you know, treating suboccipitals can really make them feel substantially better. You know, these are the guys that, you know, wake up two or three times a year with neck pain. Um, so, you know, certainly neck is a big one and in, in, in particularly in this era of more and more people understanding thoracic outlet diagnoses. You know, I look at the neck before I look anything else because when you take care of it the right way, it has pronounced downstream effects. Um, you know, whether you're looking at, you know, some of those like neurolymphatic junction points to, you know, trigger point referral stuff from, you know, scaling, shooting down to the arm, um, you know, all these different things you can, you can treat a subclavius and all of a sudden, you know, get a pronounced change to shoulder rotation. So I, I look at that first, 
T-spine, I think, is an interesting one. I think sometimes um, you look at T-spine statically, we have to make sure we, we see what we really see and not what we're, we're expecting to see. I think one of the mistakes that's made in the baseball population is they're expecting a lot of individuals to be really kyphotic, right? Because that's what they see in these desk jockeys and, you know, grandmother rotator cuff repairs and stuff like that. And, you know, the people that actually walk in, I'd, I'd estimate 50 to 60% of our players actually have very flat thoracic spines, particularly in our throwing population. And, you know, maybe 10 or 20% of them are actually kyphotic and the rest are somewhere in the middle. But I tend to see a lot more flat thoracic spines, very hyperextended, which, you know, tends to drive more of like a scapular depression, scapular adduction, almost like that classic military posture where we're also looking at downward rotation presentations. In many cases, what we have with those athletes who have very flat thoracic spines, if we think about how their vertebrae, you know, kind of align with one another, when you have a very extended spine, you're usually going to rotate really, really easily. So oftentimes when you see that flat thoracic spine, there's some people who have had like facet irritation, rhomboid strains, a lot of stuff from having too much motion, particularly passive. Um, so when we look at T-spine, you know, you emotionally separate yourself from expecting to see a bunch of kyphotic people realize a lot of them are flat and they probably need more flexion. And what I like to do is I'll look at, you know, how well can they actively flex usually just using, you know, some like all fours, belly lift up, stuff like that to drive some scapular upper rotation. But we also do um, TPIs, lumbar lock rotation screen, just to check out, you know, what their thoracic rotation looks like into you know, T-spine extension rotation. You know, I know Greg Rose puts out the norms of like 50 to 70 degrees in the general population, 70 to 90 in your rotational sport athletes. And, and you have to look at both active and passive because it's not uncommon for us to see a loose jointed guy with a flat T-spine who's got 60 degrees actively and 90 degrees passively, and he can't tap into any of it. Um, so for those athletes, you know, we're doing more motor control to get them. You know, if we see other athletes, you know, you see kyphotic athlete, you know, that's very limited in thoracic rotation. You're expecting it to be more joint stuff that, that improves as posture kind of improves. The ones that are tricky is when you see a very flat thoracic spine that has poor passive rotation, then you're starting to think about tissue extensibility. Is it, is it quadratus lumborum? Is it lat? Is it, um, you know, pec major? So there's all these different rabbit holes you can go down based on, you know, what do they look like statically? Um, what do you feel passively? You know, if it's good passively, can they tap into it, you know, from an active standpoint? So there's, there's a lot of different things you got to think about both in terms of neck and thoracic spine, but you got to look at them before you look at anything else, because they have such a, a huge trickle down effect in that proximal to distal model. Yeah, absolutely. Apologies for the, the big pivot, but um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was how much velocity-based work is done, or is that something that's more achieved by throwing? You know, is there, is there anything you do in the gym and maybe what are your, what are your exercises to improve rate of force development into internal rotation and uh, eccentric rate of force de uh, development in the external rotators? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I, th I think you can speak in a general sense, right? There's all these points on this absolute strength, absolute speed continuum where throwing a baseball is going to be the absolute speed, just like, you know, sprinting, jumping with body weight at the other end of the spectrum, you're going to have, you know, a whole bunch of, uh, you know, classic strength training exercises, squats, deadlifts, whatever it is you might be doing with your athletes. And then there's a continuum in the middle, right? Where, you know, you train strength, speed in a baseball context, maybe that's some like med ball clean tosses or, you know, throwing the med ball around, you know, and then also, you know, you have weighted ball stuff. That's a little bit more, you know, I guess speed strength, and, you know, more and more, we're starting to realize like, Hey, we can, we can use a versa pulley, you know, to train kind of strength speed with a little bit more of an eccentric overload. Hey, here's a, a Proteus. We can train strength speed with more of a concentric emphasis that allows us to train more frequently and not make athletes. Sort. So I, I do think there are those 
um, kind of different ends of the spectrum um, with respect to, you know, kind of how we train velocity a little bit different. And we can quantify more and more thanks to the, the Proteus than we otherwise wouldn't have. And other people obviously use like Kaiser, you know, you certainly get, you know, uh, power output kind of feedback in those contexts. But um, no, I, I do think, you know, velocity-based training is, is where it's at. And that's why I'm, you know, for being honest, so excited about Proteus because I think it's, it's velocity-based training, but it's in a very rotational pattern um, that allows us to kind of quantify what really matters. Like, you know, at the end of the day, like, yeah, you moved your deadlift fast. I can't really tell you whether it's going to carry over perfectly to you throwing a baseball harder, or hitting homers further. But um, this one, I think, can a little bit more. We've talked, we've talked a lot about kind of, you know, programming and, and looking at some of the arm care side of it and some of the risk factor studies that from throwing sports, you know, it, it does matter. It does matter about range of motion. It does matter about strength in our athletes. Um, but sometimes there's just this unquantifiable kind of spike in load, which it doesn't really matter how strong or how mobile you are ready for your sport. It's going to put your, put your system under a lot of stress. So, you know, I'm really interested in how you, how you look at throwing workloads now, you know, there's been a lot obviously in the literature around that and certainly some changes in how people go about managing throwing workloads over the years, but how do you specifically look at that in, in throwing athletes? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that in, and obviously data in baseball is a, is a big, big deal. You have, you know, things like the Moda sleeve um, that utilize, you know, which, which really started out as like kind of an acute stress model and they've shifted their model to, uh, to more of like a, a way to monitor workload and then see both acute stress at the same time, but also appreciating, you know, if you can get guys to wear the sleeve over a long period of time, it can tell you a lot more. And, you know, we certainly use it on guys and return to throwing programs and things like that. Um, you know, they're absolutely like readiness indicators. You know, I, I think one of the things that I learned early in my career that that has always stuck with me is that it's really darn hard to effectively quantify quote unquote overtraining uh you know without unless unless it's in uh, a volume related one right um you know so you, you can look at studies that basically show there's, there's really not a dramatic change to like testosterone to cortisol ratio or any of these markers that we historically have associated with um, you know, overtraining and like the endurance community, we don't see that nearly in much when we're talking about high intensity sports. And it was Kramer and Fry that did a really good study. I mean, this was probably like 1990. I think they did it at the University of Memphis. But I remember reading about it in grad school in like, you know, 2003 to 2005 that basically I mean, they won RM squatted people for 10 or 12 days in a row. And they didn't show any changes really to endocrine status. I mean, the only that happened is their performance went down the, the crapper. So it's always stuck out in my mind that there is no better marker of readiness than just communicating with an athlete about how they feel and, and looking at the outputs, you know, is the velocity down. And I can't tell you how many times over the years where I've, I've talked with an athlete who's just like the velocity's not there. I'll be like, dude, just take two days off, eat everything in sight and go to bed at nine o'clock and let's see how it goes. And, and like literally three days later, it, they're, they're better than they were, you know, when they were at their best. So I, I'm not sure that really answers your question, but I, I do think it's, it's certainly big business and, and workload monitoring is tricky. We have some, some very, you know, kind of elaborate um, calculations that take place, you know, with the Yankees underneath our performance science umbrella that are, that are you know contingent on feedback from a number of different parties and departments which i think is great because there's a lot of checks and balances in there and um, you know tie in sports medicine and skill development and strength conditioning and all that stuff so you know that's something that we we've built out internally that i think is really exciting and allows us to, to track things you know more meticulous than they were ever could previously um 
but in, you know, in the private sector, the day-to-day -day stuff, I still don't think there's anything better than, than, than a good conversation that, you know, it's built on a good relationship. Yeah, I hear that. I think that's really nice. I think the subjective side of it has actually stacked up pretty well against objective measures over the years, you know, from some. Yeah. And I think the hard part, yeah, I mean, not to, I probably just forgotten you off. I'm just thinking, you know, you, you've been in the, you know, obviously the soccer world, you've been in the rugby world. It's just, there's so much, uh, you know, mileage covered by those athletes. I think it was like, was it like seven plus miles that the average mid, midfielder covers in an average soccer match? You know, it's a combination of walking, jogging, full tilt, sprinting. Um, like in baseball, there's just, there isn't that. It's, it's not as easily quantified. Like, you know, a guy's going to jog out really slowly to the outfield. You know, he's going to make three or four throws to his buddy. He's going to stand around for, for 15 minutes out there. He might not see a ball. He's going to come back in and, and you realize these athletes, you know, they're, they're running the bases, but there's not a ton of mileage. So it's, it's actually maybe a little bit easier to track, you know, what they do just because the, the total output is, is lower than if they were in a, a sport with really heavy metabolic conditioning demands. But where it gets really challenging is sometimes they go and they stand around for 30 minutes on a 40 degree night you know, and they stiffen up and then all of a sudden they got to come back in and have an at bat and, you know, and, and run as fast as they can to try to beat out an infield single. So there, there's a lot of complexities, you know, and that's true of every sport, but, um, you know, I, I think it just makes monitoring a little bit tricky at times. Erica, me and Ben could probably bug you with uh, technical questions for days, um, but I'm, I'm aware that you have a life and you're a busy man as well. So um, well, I'm, I'm conscious of the time at the moment. Where's the, where's the best place for people to follow you? Yeah, there's a couple options. So it's just Eric Cressy on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And ericcressy.com is my my website where the podcast, the newsletter, the vlog are. If folks are more interested on the actual like shoulder-specific conversations and a lot of what we do in terms of evaluating coaching and programming at the upper extremity, um, Sturdy Shoulders is kind of my my landmark research. That's the, or my landmark program. Um, that's uh, sturdyshoulders.com. They can check that stuff out. Cool. I will account to that. And yeah, thank you for the uh, podcast share on episode one. And thank you very much for your time today coming on ours. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, guys. I enjoyed it. A big, big thanks to Eric for returning the favor and coming on our show. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and learned as much as myself and Ben did picking Eric's brains. Make sure you subscribe to the show if you're enjoying listening and follow us on social media to ensure that you don't miss new episode releases and updates from Informed Performance. Our Instagram handle is Informed Performance and our Twitter handle is at InformPod. Thanks for listening to today's show. Catch us next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.